Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 8th, we are studying Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. Having identified Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham, the evangelist now traces the genealogy of Jesus through those two important Old Testament saints. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Pastor Ill, there's not a whole lot of context to talk about here in Matthew's Gospel. We've only covered one verse so far, but there is plenty of context to think about when it comes to genealogies in God's Word. This is not the first time that the Bible records a genealogy for us. So to get us started, let's talk a little bit about the overall significance and use of genealogies in the Scripture. What can you tell us? Genealogies show up throughout Scripture, uh, beginning in Genesis, and Genesis is even structured around genealogy, saying uh, the, this is the generations of, uh, and then it will go through actually in 12 cycles, uh, all of the people of the Old Testament, and through the book of Genesis, narrating it by generation and by genealogy. But this isn't given to give us a family tree. Uh, you know, now it's popular to go on Ancestry.com or any of those other uh, places where you can track down your family tree, figure out all of those things. That's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture records these genealogies to show who the people of God are and to direct the people of God not to themselves, but to the one who was really born, who was really begotten, who was really conceived, who really existed, who had a real mother and a real family tree and family history— and that one is Jesus. And so all of the genealogies of Genesis and Exodus and Numbers uh, through the Kings and the Chronicles are all directing us to the genealogies in the Gospels, to the genealogy of Matthew, where we hear that Jesus is, in addition to being the Christ or the Messiah, he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the promised one to come who will uh, call all of us brothers in himself as we get together before our Father and as we pray together. Hmm. So I, I want to just to backtrack just a hair. You said it, they're not given to give a family tree, at, and I think you qualified this, not in the sense that you and I would want a family tree today. You mentioned Ancestry.com. There's, there's numerous sites out there that I think will do this kind of thing where you can trace your ancestors backward. And generally, the idea is to be as complete as possible so that you can say, this was my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and so forth, with every generation listed, if you can. Fully, right. Fully, right. And the Bible's not doing that kind of family tree. It is giving a family tree. And I think you, you've made that, that case. It, it wants you to know who is in this family and who is the most important member of this family, namely Jesus Christ, as you've said. But it's it's not doing it in the same way that genealogies are done today. So the, the, the completeness that maybe we're often looking for is not necessarily the goal of the Old Testament writers or the New Testament writers. Is that a fair thing to say, Pastor Ill? Right. When we start a family tree, we'll start with me, and then we'll look at, say, my mom and my dad, and then we'll talk about my mom and dad's brothers and sisters and their children, and then we'll talk about my uh, my great-grandparents and all of their brothers and sisters, and, and we'll try to branch it out from me. Scripture isn't concerned about branching out the full detail of, of everybody in every generation. Scripture keeps reducing these genealogies down and saying, there's really only one line that we want to follow, and that's the line that brings us to Jesus. And that the importance of having a genealogy and sometimes asking the question, Matthew starts his gospel, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, 
why in the world would he then follow it with 16 verses of genealogy that if you're anything like me and anything like a lot of Christians, your eyes kind of glaze over as you kind of just uh, jump ahead to the next time that something happens because these genealogies, well, they can be kind of boring and they can, they have a lot of names that we might not be familiar with and we're not sure why it's such a big deal. Uh, but Matthew constructs this genealogy in such a way that says, actually, this particular genealogy and the account of Jesus is a big deal because he is the Messiah. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David, and he is the king with all authority in heaven and on earth for you. And knowing that family history and that he is the one who comes to to fulfill all of the promises to the people of God. That's a really important thing to know. One of the things that I, I like to point out about the genealogies in Scripture and genealogies in general is that typically genealogies are only interesting to you if it's your family. So, Pastor Ail, you could start telling me some of your family history, I'm sure, and at a certain point, I'd just tune out because I'm not related to those people, at least not very directly. And same if I began to to list my genealogy to you, you you'd just tune out, and and goodness knows our, our listeners probably would turn us off, and we don't want that. <laughs> we yeah, don't want that. Stay with us. Stay with us because the genealogies that are given in Scripture, these are our family trees, right? We are included in this family because Jesus Christ is our brother. And, and so just as to keep that in the back of our minds when we read this genealogy in particular, and also other genealogies in the scriptures, that this is your family. This is my family because Jesus Christ is our brother. And, and that means that they are important. We shouldn't just gloss over them. Even if we don't know everything about every single name, this is our family. And it's our family because of our brother, Jesus Christ, who is our savior. So if we keep that in mind, at least I find that helpful to me as I read through the genealogies in the, in the scriptures. So with that, let's go ahead and take a look at what Matthew has for us here in chapter one, beginning at verse two. Matthew writes, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mothan, and Mothan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's the text, Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus as recorded by St. Matthew. So, Pastor Ill, I did all the hard work of pronouncing all those names. So help us, help us through some of those names, particularly let's, let's start where Matthew does. He starts with Abraham, which is not as far back as Matthew could have gone had he wanted. Why does Matthew start with Abraham? It is to Abraham that God has given the promise that he will be the father of many nations. And that promise is the promise that's fulfilled in Christ. And 
it starts with Abraham because we see God coming to Abraham and saying, uh, here, this is the gift of faith. Follow me. And Abraham does. And Abraham continues to live by faith and to to pass on the promise. That's why we hear in the Old Testament so often, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What Matthew is doing is saying, yeah, this is this, Jesus, is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And from there, uh, he's also the father of, he's also the God of Judah and Perez and Zerah and Hezron, and Ram, and Aminadab, and and on it goes to say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who is coming into this line in order to redeem them, and in order to save the whole world. So, he starts with Abraham, where the the people of the promise will all say, yeah, we go back to Abraham. He's starting with with that, and then he says, there are three chunks of history where we see this development. And so there's there's kind of a structure thing. If there's anybody who, who's listening who's who's a math nerd, power to you, glad you're here. And this I'm this a part's math for nerd, you. Pastor well, Ill. Excellent. For you, Pastor Apple, then we get to <laughs> revel in in the joy of this structure. And I'm gonna do my best. Uh, there are three sections from Abraham to King David, and then from King David to the uh, deportation to Babylon or the exile in Babylon, and then from being taken away to Babylon to the birth of Jesus are the three sections. Matthew records in each of those sections 14 names. This is where it gets a little wiggly, and and I'm just going to be honest about it. The first 14 names are father and son passed along just like they are in the book of Genesis and um, into uh, the book of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But from David, it gets a little bit uh, different where occasionally you have grandfathers begetting grandsons. And you hit a couple of points where the counting in order to line up with 14 isn't exactly spot on. This is because it's not about confessing uh, the perfect symmetry of the 14 fathers and sons, but rather saying there is an orderly plan of fatherhood where God the Father brings his son, Jesus the Christ, into this created line, loving the world through him to redeem those of this line and ultimately those of this faith. So it's not about the numbers as much as it is about God in all times bringing about his kingdom, preserving his kingdom, and even accompanying his kingdom when they are in suffering and in exile. In all times, God is with his people preparing for the birth of the Christ. And that doesn't go away. I'm reminded of what St. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4. Where he says, when the when the time had fully come, I think that's how the is that how the NIV translated. When the fullness of time had come, is the way the ESV reads, God sent forth His Son, and so all along, this is God's bringing about the fullness of time, and Matthew in showing this symmetry in the way that he constructs the genealogy is is making a similar point to Saint Paul. So, so Pastor L, but but what you're saying then is that this genealogy, and this goes back to the point we were making earlier, this genealogy is not a complete one in the sense that you and I might try to construct through Ancestry.com. And it's not always one generation to the next. So sometimes it's grandfather to grandson rather than father to son. And that's okay. We, we can be okay with that. Matthew's not, I mean, this doesn't bother us as Christians. Right. This doesn't negate the truthfulness of Scripture or the identity of Jesus. Uh, this isn't a mistake or even uh, bad counting or bad math. This is simply St. Matthew saying, here's the line. There were 14 steps from Abraham to King David, and so we're going to show 14 steps from David to the exile and from the exile to the Christ. Okay, and we'll let Matthew be stylistic 
And uh, and then there are some people who like to ask the question, well, then why is 14 so important? Lots of people smarter than me have taken a guess at this, and I'm not I'm not even going to guess. And I'm. I'm completely comfortable saying Matthew used 14 because he used 14. If you push me toward using somebody else's guess, I like the idea that there were 14 original fathers and sons from Abraham to David, and Matthew just kept that up. And and he kind of telescoped or combined grandfathers and grandsons in that way uh, in order to keep the 14 that was original. Some people have talked about how if you start counting in Hebrew letters, uh, the 14 actually equals the letters for the the name David. Uh, I like the spirit of that guess, but I'm I'm kind of a hard sell on that one. I'm not I'm not convinced, but but I appreciate the guess. But I don't think it's important for us to be able to answer the question, why 14? I think we can simply say, here's 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, and in all of them, God is preparing his people for the Christ. And that that's good enough for me. Well, I think, I think that that gets at what, what Matthew is getting at, is that God is the one who's directing the events here. And that's going to be particularly important to keep in mind as we move forward and, and in a little while talk about some of the particular people in here who sure looks like maybe they were quite faithless. And yet all along we see the faithfulness of God. And so Matthew, following the rules that he's allowed to follow because he's the one that's that's writing this genealogy. And again, he's not following the rules that we're, we're following. We got to keep that in mind. He's, he's following his rules or for what genealogies are meant to do. They're meant to point us to Christ. And so he's going to construct this genealogy in that way to show us God's faithfulness in the midst of sometimes faithful people, sometimes faithless people. The Lord is being faithful to his promise to bring about the Christ who is promised all along. Is, is, that, a, is that a good summary of what we've said so far, Pastor Hill? I think that's exactly what we've been driving at and exactly what we're hoping okay. to say. Very good. So with that then, let's before we before we get into let's let's stay big picture for a moment yet. We've talked a little bit about Abraham as one of that's the starting point. What about these other dividing places? We've got Abraham, David, the deportation to Babylon, and then Jesus. Can you give us some significance to those dividing places that Matthew takes? When God gave the promise to Abraham, he said that he was going to be the father of kings. And so this genealogy ends up being the story of a kingdom and the story of of kings. So it starts with Abraham, and it was promised he would have, as a son, a king. And then that leads to David, who is the king. Uh, And then it leads from there to the fall of the kingdom, when the kingdom is taken away in exile. And even when the kingdom, uh, when the people of Israel return from their exile in Babylon, they don't have a kingdom in the same way that they did before. Instead, they have a line, a genealogical line that continues, but the time of self-rule in Jerusalem is really pretty short with the Assyrians and Babylonians and the Greeks and then finally the Romans. There weren't a whole lot of kings in Israel, but here comes Jesus. And I'm I'm borrowing from elsewhere in Matthew's gospel where it says, says very clearly that Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus as a king. In fact, the king who fulfills the line of David and who fulfills the promise given to David that his offspring would have an everlasting throne. That everlasting throne is seen in the anointed one. And so we talk pretty commonly about Jesus being the anointed one, the Messiah, or the Greek word for that is the Christ. But the people who were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, comes in order to be, well, among other things, the king of all creation. 
And so we see him uh, at the very end and the very fulfillment of the story of the kingdom. Abraham, you're going to have a son who's going to be king. David, you're going to have an everlasting throne. Even when the kingdom looks like it's over, there is the promise of the coming king. And here he is in Jesus Christ, the king. I really like that as a way to tie this genealogy together, this this idea of the kingdom. And it's, it really fits well with what we're going to see Matthew do throughout the rest of his gospel. Right after this, we're going to see Joseph called the son of David. This kingly line is there again. We're going to see the conflict between Herod the king and the king of the Jews who has been born in Bethlehem. We're going to see Jesus, well, John first, and then Jesus both come preaching that the kingdom of heaven is near. We're going to see Jesus named the king of the Jews again when he's hanging on the cross. We're going to see, as you pointed out at the very end, that all authority in heaven on earth belongs to Jesus, who is the king. That is a very helpful way of tying it together. And, and even through that deportation and into Babylon, because I think in the dividing lines, that's the one that stands out because Abraham is a man. David is a man. Jesus at the end is a man. But but right in the middle there, you've just got this deportation, sort of like a dead spot in the genealogy. And as you said, that's when the, the kingdom, it would seem, disappears. But Matthew's going to tell us, no, no, it hasn't disappeared because here's Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of these promises. He's the king. He He's the one that, that you're looking for all along. Good stuff, Pastor L. Good stuff. So, with that, let's let's dig into into uh, excuse me into some specifics, Pastor L. One of the things that stands out in Matthew's genealogy is the mention of women. You're reading along, and you've got father, son, or as we've said, grandfather, grandson. But occasionally, there's an interruption by the mother of one of these sons or grandsons. So we've got four minutes here on this side of the break, Pastor Ill. Let's get started with the first one that we see, and that's in verse three. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Yeah, this one is uh, maybe unfamiliar to a lot of people uh, because we know that Judah is one of the uh, 12 sons of, of Israel, and it talks about how uh, he took a wife for his firstborn, uh, and then his firstborn died. And the way that the line was supposed to be passed on was that uh, she would then, uh, that her brother-in-law would serve her to continue the line for his brother. And so uh, the child that they would have would carry the blessing and the, the family line. But Judah didn't give his second son to, didn't give Tamar, his daughter-in-law, to his second son so that this could happen. And so, uh, and and we can then talk about the sin of Onan when uh it happened that Onan uh, will will use the same words that the Bible uses and say that he wasted his seed on the ground. And from there, Tamar deceives Judah, uh, getting him to think that she is a prostitute. Uh, he, they conceive a child together, and then she makes it known to him that it was her that he had visited. And this was his child through her, and that the line was continued through Tamar by Judah, her father-in-law, which makes is kind of squeamish. It's not a story that you would expect to be in the savior of the world's history. And it's a story that, uh, for a lot of reasons, makes us really uncomfortable, uh, sends us to Genesis 38, and we, we scratch our head and pull our hair a little bit, and then we say, how is it that the Messiah can come from this line with this amount of brokenness? And the answer is, it's God's promise. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is the one who comes 
in all of the messiness of our sin, in all of the deceit, in all of the entanglements, in all of the lack of faithfulness to his word. And again and again, we see him being faithful. This is going to be true also of the of the other women that show up in the genealogy, because uh, none of them are exactly uh, models of, of virtue and uh, ideal personages in the history of Jesus, because Jesus doesn't come for ideal people. Jesus doesn't come for virtuous people. Jesus comes for people who are fallen sinners. And we'll definitely see that in the rest of the genealogy. And it's not just, just to, in this particular account, it's not just Tamar, who's the, who's the one who's being faithless. Judah is not being very faithful either. And in fact, if you go back there into Genesis 38, he even acknowledges when he realizes what's going on, that she was more faithful or more righteous than he was in the whole account. And so it's, it's by no means singling out the women as the ones who are the sinners, but it's often pointing to the fact that the men in this genealogy are just as sinful. And as you said, that's who Jesus came for. He came for sinners. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Wednesday, January 8th, we're studying Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17 with Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were beginning to look at the women that Matthew inserts into his genealogy, an unusual thing to happen, but important. And so we talked a little bit about Tamar in verse three. The next one that comes up is in verse five, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Tell us about Rahab. Rahab is uh, the woman who shows up at the beginning of the book of Joshua when the spies come into the land of Jericho and they are scouting it out. They go in and they hide in the house of Rahab, who happened to be a prostitute, and a promise was made to her that she and her family would be saved from the walls falling down. But it turns out that not only was she saved from the walls falling down, she was saved by marrying into God's people and being one of the great, great dot, dot, dot grandmothers of Jesus himself. This foreign prostitute was made to be part of God's people, part of his history and part of his genealogy that he came to save because Jesus didn't come for people outside of his genealogy. He came for all of those who are in his family, including Rahab. And mm. this makes us kind of scratch our heads and say, wait, so now we have a, a daughter-in-law who uh, is a deceiver and who acts like a prostitute. Now we have a real prostitute. Uh, what kind of family tree is this? This is the family tree of real sinners who need a real savior. And when we are convicted of our sins and say, wow, I am a real sinner, the real McCoy, is it possible for Jesus to love me? Is it possible for Jesus to save me? And we say, he saved Tamar and Judah. He saved Rahab, who had been a prostitute. He's going to save these, these others who come along in this family tree. And he saves me. Jesus is a real savior for real sinners. Uh, the thing that I think helps tie at least Tamar and Rahab together is that even as they are real sinners, they are clinging to this real savior. They're holding on to the family from which the savior will come. Tamar, for all of her troubles, she holds on to this promise that the, the savior is coming from this line. And Rahab does the same for all of her past sins. She recognizes 
the family from where salvation is going to come. And so she clings to that family as well. And, and so you see these real sinners who are clinging to their real savior. It's just a, it's a beautiful thing that Matthew's doing here. What about, what about the next one? The same, same verse still in verse five, we get Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now that's a more familiar name, I think, just especially if you've memorized the books of the Bible. Tell us about Ruth. So Ruth was the daughter-in-law of a man named Elimelech. And she married one of Elimelech's sons, but then Elimelech, her father-in-law, and both of his sons died. But Ruth herself, well, she wasn't from the people of Israel. She was from the country of Moab. So she was a, a Moabitess. And she very famously, when her mother-in-law said, well, you stay here in Moab, I'm going to go back to my people and and maybe they will be kind to me. Uh, Ruth said, no, I will go with you. Your people are my people. Your land is my land. Your God is my God. And so Ruth returns to, ironically, not, well, not ironically, to the city of Bethlehem. And she encounters Boaz, who cares for her, and then they end up being married, not because they had to, but because Boaz saw that in the faithfulness of this Moabitess, he could care for his, his distant cousin Naomi, he could care for Ruth, and he would be faithful to the Lord his God. And they had a son named Obed. Uh, the book of Ruth actually ends with... Obed was born to Ruth and to Boaz, and from Obed came their son Jesse, and from Jesse came David, the king. And so the book of Ruth plays right into this, talking about how even the foreigners, those who were not God's people, have been brought in and included as God's people. That's another place where Matthew's gospel continually points that Jesus isn't just the God of the Jewish people or of the Hebrew people. He is ultimately the God of all people, bringing in Ruth the Moabitess, the Magi from the East, and others who seem to be outside of God's people. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus brings them in because the kingdom of God is for them too. So we've got sinners in the in the line of Jesus. We've got foreigners in the line of Jesus. All of this reminding us that Jesus is the savior for sinners, the savior for all people. Also showing us the faithfulness of God. We don't we don't want to lose sight of that either. We we said that at the very beginning. You know, who who would have thought that this is how the savior of the world would have come into the world? Well, the Lord. He's the one that worked through these events to bring the Savior into the world. Even when people were being faithless, he was being faithful. And and I think we see that as well with the fourth woman who's mentioned, and she's not even mentioned by name. This is in verse six. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who's the wife of Uriah, Pastor Hill? Uriah's wife's name is Bathsheba, and we know her by that name, but it was by Bathsheba who was uh, bathing during those days when, when the kings went out to war, but David didn't go out to war with his men. Instead, he was on his rooftop and he saw Bathsheba. He summoned her uh, and they had an affair. From there, uh, a son was conceived. David was confronted with his sin and then the son uh, died shortly after childbirth. But then when David and Bathsheba were married, uh, David had had Uriah killed, uh, you might remember, uh, while he was out at war when David wasn't. And David then married Bathsheba, and they had a second son, uh, Solomon. And it was Solomon who went on to inherit the throne of David after him. And... You would expect that this would be one of those places in Scripture where, you know, in the genealogy of Jesus, maybe you'd whitewash this tragedy. If David is the, the picture of the king that comes in this line and in this genealogy, why would you highlight one of the biggest tragedies of his kingship, the time when his faithlessness is on display? It's because Jesus is still a real savior for real sinners. He's a real savior for David. 
He's a real savior for Bathsheba, just like he's a real savior for us. So there, there's the four women who are listed in this first part of the genealogy. You've got, again, Tamar, Ruth, sorry, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. It, it seems to me, Pastor Ellen, and I don't want to take this too far, but but Tamar and the wife of Uriah, their accounts are, are similar in the, the relationship in the matter of adultery being a very important part of those accounts. And then the two middle ones, uh, Rahab and Ruth, are, are similar in the fact that you've got foreigners coming into the people of God clinging to those promises. I don't want to take that too far, but but there are definitely similarities in these accounts. All of these women are rather unexpected inclusions, not just because of their women, but because of the whole story that surrounds them. But those four are not the last. The last woman listed in genealogy is at the very end. Joseph, in verse 16, you've got Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So, how does Mary fit into all this? To someone who doesn't know the rest of the story, Mary's situation will look a lot like Tamar's and Rahab's and Bathsheba's. Um, not maybe so much as Ruth, because she does follow in this line of planning to be married. She's betrothed to Joseph, as it says in Luke's Gospel. But here in Matthew, it talks about how they are husband and wife, and before they come together, Mary is found to be with child, and it's not Joseph's. This is scandalous, uh, as scandalous as, at least from a human perspective, it's scandalous, I should say. And just like Tamar was scand uh, was involved in scandal, and Bathsheba, and Rahab, and even Ruth, there's all kinds of echoes of impropriety all throughout, and it looks like here's another improper woman. And it is this woman that people might refer to as impious, who hears the word of God and who believes it, and in her is conceived Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, and who is called the Christ, the Messiah. He is Emmanuel for the broken and the scandalized, for the people that so often we would want to count out of God's people. Jesus says, for real sinners, for foreigners, for people that you don't think belong, I want to bring them in. Jesus is the Savior for all people. It's, do we see a bit of escalation in, in the way that the women are included here? In the sense that with the first four particularly, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, all, all of these are unexpected that the Lord would include them in his family history. But in each case, you know, it, it makes sense that, that's the way the line progresses because of the way the line progresses. But with Mary, the Lord's action there is, well, it's miraculous compared to the other four. Is, is, do we see a, an, a sense of escalation towards Mary then in that sense? I'm not sure. I've, I've not really thought about a, a sense of escalation in that way. Um, it's very plausible, but but it's something I haven't I haven't really dug into a whole lot Beyond this, sorry. Fair enough. No, that's okay. It's just a, a thought that, that occurred to me that, that with Mary, the birth of Jesus is miraculous. The other, the other ones, the, the birth of the child is not miraculous in the sense that you have a father and a mother, but Mary stands out in that the birth of her son is a miraculous birth. And, and just to highlight Mary and her role in that way, because this child, the promised child, the one, is, as you said, who's going to be the king that's promised all along, he comes in this completely miraculous way. So, again, that, just a, a thought that, that I had. So, thanks for letting me bounce it off of you, Pastor Hill. So, with that, Pastor Hill, we still have 14 minutes left here on the morning. So, that, that's a good amount of time. Are there any of the—we've we've talked about the, the women here. Are there any of the men— that you want to highlight, bring out any details from from some of their accounts. We've talked about Abraham, David. What what about some of these other other guys in here? Some of these others uh, are known to us. Um, we're familiar, certainly, with Isaac and Jacob uh, and Judah. But after that is when it starts to get 
a little more unfamiliar for us and names that aren't as familiar. Uh, and there's for many of them, there's not a whole lot more known, say, about uh, Ram and Aminadab um, and Nashon and, and so on, other than to say that these people are known to God. And we don't want to count out those those named people of God who whose names don't seem to be uh, as familiar to us. There are lots of unfamiliar names who are all written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so we don't want to count them out. Uh, we've already talked about Boaz and Obed and Jesse, uh, Jesse, of course, being the father of, of David. And especially as we're just coming off this Christmas season, we think a lot about how the one is coming who would be the, uh, the branch of the root of Jesse. And this is a fulfillment indeed of that, that it is Jesse's offspring, David, who ultimately leads to Jesus. And so we recognize him. And from there, we recognize some royal names as this line uh, takes on the kingship. And so we've heard certainly of David and Solomon. Uh, we remember Rehoboam and some of his mistakes when God took the northern ten tribes away from his kingdom uh, because the people approached Rehoboam and they said, now that your father Solomon is is dead and is no longer king, what kind of king will you be? And he gave them a very harsh answer at the advice of his young men. And the northern ten tribes started to follow someone else, Jeroboam, and became a separate kingdom. It looked like the kingdom was falling apart. But God preserved his people and we hear of those other kings who come after him, some good, some bad. And ultimately, though, the kingdom falls. And you have some vassal kings of the Babylonians, uh, that is, kings that the Babylonians put into place and kept in place to continue to be king. But the Babylonians were the ones calling the shots. And on and on it goes. But there's not a lot of famous names and not a lot of well-known names, but these are names that are known by God and that God cares about. I think that's a really important point to make anytime, again, as we think about genealogies in Scripture, that even when there's names that we don't know who they are, and that's the only place they're listed in the Bible, or there's names that we can't pronounce very well, that the Lord knows these names and that he's got them written in his book of life. Much like, again, it goes back to that putting putting the perspective that this is your family tree. There's there's all those those lists of names in prayer lists in bulletins across the country, and and if I looked at yours, Pastor Ill, and if you looked at mine, we wouldn't know most of those names. Maybe we maybe there'd be one or two that we might recognize, but the Lord knows who those names are. That and that that's the key. That that's very important, and, and that's really true, especially as you get into that third section of, of Matthew's genealogy. Here, we we don't know a lot of those names. We know many more of those kings, and as you said, good and bad, right? Um, Hezekiah is and Josiah, really, really faithful kings for the people of Judah. Manasseh, not so much. So so that that mixture in there of of faithful kings, faithless kings, all of them sinners. Again, reminding us that the Lord is faithful in bringing his Savior into the world. And this Savior comes for sinners, for all nations, for you, for me. So, Pastor El, there's another genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. And it's found in Luke chapter 3. And, and we're studying Matthew here. And so we don't want to get sidetracked. But, but this is an issue that comes up. And it's one that we are right to pay attention to and to have an answer for. And you don't have to read very long in Matthew chapter 1 or in Luke chapter 3 to notice that there are some differences between the two genealogies. Help us, give us just a, we've got nine minutes left here in the morning. Give us an introduction into some of the things that we would see when we compare those two and how we hold them together, both as true as Christians. The biggest difference is a difference of direction. So Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham and tracks through this promise of the kingdom, through King David, through the deportation in Babylon, and to the ultimate king, the Christ. On the flip side, 
what Luke's gospel does is he starts at Jesus and he starts backtracking. So instead of counting forward, he's counting backwards. And he doesn't stop when he gets to Abraham. He continues counting um, before Abraham all the way to Adam, the son of God. And Luke has a different focus than Matthew does. He's not trying to portray the promise for the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham as much as he's giving the fulfillment of the promise for all people. And he's really picking up on that, that Jesus is the one to come. Uh, And Paul is going to pick up on this idea, too, of Jesus being the second Adam. That flows very naturally out of the way that Luke constructs his genealogy, starting with Jesus and working backwards to the creation of the world that the Christ was present for. He is the one uh, through whom all things were made, including Adam. And so now the maker also comes as the redeemer in Luke's line. Uh, But that's not a theme that Matthew picks up on uh, as much as Luke does. Hmm. So Matthew goes uh, from Abraham into the future and Luke goes from Jesus into the past. Right. So the difference of direction and the difference of starting point, it recognizing if you were to lay them in the same direction, right? You've got Adam as the, as the, or well, actually God, I suppose, Adam, the son of God, as that's where Luke's going to take it all the way to. Matthew's only going to go to Abram. So you've got the difference of direction. And, and in terms of their purposes, their emphases, those things make sense. Perhaps a bit more challenging, though, is, for example, in Matthew 1, verse 16, you read, Jacob, the father of Joseph. When you look in Luke, chapter 3, there you see that Joseph is the son of Heli, or sometimes you'll see Eli. Those are two different names, Pastor Ill. What do we do with that? Um, we say both of these men are inspired by the word of by the work of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not exactly sure how those two names might work together. And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit and to trust the evangelists as they've written this, because the importance is who is Christ, not necessarily every step along the way of the tree. Uh, This isn't to say that Jesus isn't a historical person and that the people who came before him are somehow not historical or are flexible. Not at all. But rather, is it possible that one man was known by more than one name or that this is another place where we see some telescoping uh, or, or creative generation counting by Matthew? Very possibly. But at the end of the day, I'm not nearly as concerned about uh, each step along the way as what these genealogies say about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Mm. And that's that's ultimately where we want to to come down on is that these genealogies are there to point us to Jesus. And and there are difficulties, but there are plausible explanations for all of them. And, and so I'm sure you've you've heard some of these pastor as you've already brought out we know that Matthew is constructing his genealogy with a purpose. And so to see him leave out some names, that's completely within the rules. And so that's, that's one way to look at these. Another way that, I, that I've heard, and I think uh, Martin Luther was, was one who at least popularized this, is that Matthew is tracing the genealogy through Joseph. And Luke is tracing perhaps through Mary. And, and when you read through Luke, and his, his first couple chapters, it does become apparent that Luke is, is very concerned with Mary and her role in the birth of Jesus. And it's not that Matthew's not, but, but Matthew's paying a lot more attention to Joseph. And so to, to see perhaps Luke chapter three as being a genealogy of Jesus rather than Joseph, as was supposed, it's actually going through Mary, that both Mary and Joseph go through the line of David. As you've said, we're not going to be able to answer that question with certainty in the sense that I can say, or you can say, this is exactly why these differences are the way they are. But none of that affects that this is God's inspired word, that Matthew and Luke are both writing true accounts and true genealogies of Jesus. And that's who they're pointing to. They're pointing to him as the Christ, the King, the Son of God, the promised Savior for sinners, for the whole world. 
Pastor L, we've got just over three minutes here left on the morning. Give us a, a summary of, of the morning of Jesus' genealogy, what we need to, to get from it here as we continue on in Matthew's gospel. The genealogy of Matthew is a focused line that starts with God's promise to Abraham, flows through the kingdom of David, even in its dark days of the deportation to Babylon, and continues on to say all of this points to and leads us to the Christ. All of this brings us to the very center of the Christian faith, of who Jesus is. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the one who came born of Mary and Joseph in order to suffer and to die, in order to forgive sins, in order to be the Savior, to be God with us. He is both fully God and fully man in the middle of his creation. And from there, he works to preserve and protect his church. And so he rules over it, not with an iron fist or with a firm hand like maybe Rehoboam did, but instead he comes humble, riding on a donkey, the foal of that beast of burden, in order to suffer, in order to die, because that is the work of the Messiah. And so we don't look to this genealogy to somehow prove the Bible or to make historical claims. We look to this genealogy to say, Jesus is called a son and a brother to Abraham. He is called a son and a brother to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah. And he is called to us, not a son, no, but still a savior and a brother one who calls us brother when we believe in him. If you're a male brother or a female brother, doesn't much matter. What does matter is that he has put his name upon you, just like he has put his name on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Ruth, Boaz, Tamar, and the whole lot of them. And he's done the same for us, giving us that same gift of faith because he's really and truly born within this line, to be our Savior, God with us. Pastor Peter Hill is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. Pastor Hill, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for letting me be along again today. You are a part of Jesus' family tree. He is your brother who has come into the world through this line of real people, sinners though they are, this is his family. This is who he came to save, these sinners. And you, sinners, he came to save you. He is your brother. He is your savior. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.